Psalm 31 is what I call a mountain valley psalm. There's a lot of psalms that start in the valley and they end up on the mountaintop. Psalm 31 is unique because verses 1 through 8 is very victorious. Verses 9 through 13 are a lot of discouragement. I like to read a lot of old commentaries. And I like to read a lot of the old ones from hundreds of years ago. They have stood the test of time. And one of these old commentaries, they have a way of saying things. As they describe verses 9 through 13 that we read for our call to worship as, quote, a pathetic description of his need. If you read 9 through 13, it does come across as very pathetic. But the reality is there's a lot of pathetic moments in our lives. I can relate to that. That's the valley. So 1 through 8, you're on the mountaintop. God is good. 9 through 13, it's the valley. It's dark. You're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. 14 through 24, we're back up the mountain. It's a roller coaster, folks. The Bible says that sometimes we're tossed to and fro by the waves of life and we're not walking in faith. We have to learn. We have to learn that we are not defined by the valley. Do not define your life by the valley. You are defined by who you are in Jesus Christ. And our key word here in this psalm is the word trust. This word trust is used four different times in this psalm. And we need to understand the importance of this word trust. Verse 1, in you, O Lord, I put my trust Verse 6, I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Verse 14, but as for me, I trust in you. And verse 19, oh, how great is your goodness which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you. That's the word trust. It says in the book of Proverbs, some people faint in the day of adversity. Some people melt in the fires of life. I remember years ago, uh, somebody was doing a church plant and they asked to get together and just ask for advice and counsel. And they had a, a great group of people that was getting ready to do the church plant. They were young, energetic, and amen. But they didn't have any battle-hardened seasoned Christians. And I remember telling them, yes, you want that young fire. You want that excitement. But you need some people that have been through the fire that didn't melt. You need some people that have been through adversaries and they have not fainted. You need some people that have been through the valley. And when they go through the valley, they don't walk in defeat and discouragement. Because the reality is you will have mountains, you will have valleys, and you're back up the mountains. And that's exactly what you see here in Psalm 31. So if you are the person that faints in the day of adversity, if you're the person that melts in the fire, then learn from this psalm here as we trust in him. This psalm is what, not one of the more well-known psalms. When you think of well-known psalms, you think of Psalm 23, maybe Psalm 40, Psalm 100. This one, though, is quoted so often. Beginning of Psalm 71 is very similar to this. Jeremiah quotes or alludes to this psalm probably at least six times in the book of Jeremiah, especially verse 13, where it says fear is on every side. Jesus himself quotes from this psalm, verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. Let that sink into you, that Jesus at the moment of death is quoting Psalm 31. And not only Jesus, when Stephen was then stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, he quotes, into your hand I commit my spirit. So this psalm carries a lot of weight with it. And this is an important psalm. So with that being said, going back to what we just read, verse 1, And you, O Lord, I put my trust. The first question, the most important question of the teaching, do you trust him? Trust him that he will deliver you. Do you trust him? How are we trusting him? He's going to deliver us how? Verse 1, deliver me in your righteousness. Not my righteousness, but his righteousness. I don't want to be delivered in my righteousness. I don't have righteousness. Remember, righteousness is just a fancy word that means to be made right. 
I am not right. It doesn't matter how many nice old ladies I help across the street. I will never have enough righteousness or good things I've done to make up for my bad. Think back to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. Every time I lose my anger, my temper at somebody, I am murdering them. How many times in my marriage have I murdered my wife or my kids in anger? Or Matthew 5 where it talks about any time the mind wanders to the opposite sex, that lust. Just think about that. We are so full of sin and thought, action, and deed. I have no righteousness. There's an ongoing theme in the world today that the world wants to tell us that we're all inherently good people. You will not find that teaching in anywhere in the Bible. I have no righteousness. And that's why, Lord, deliver me, verse 1, in your righteousness. Be thankful it's not in my righteousness. It is in your righteousness. And when you deliver me, verse 1, excuse me, verse 2, deliver me speedily. Speedily. You want it to happen quickly. Let's just be honest. Lord, come and save now, the Bible says. I mean, imagine being in the worst physical pain you've ever experienced in your life. And the Lord says, I want to stop. I want to touch. I want to heal. And you say, oh, Lord, please, please do that. Please do it tomorrow. That makes no sense. But you realize that that's a biblical concept in the pride and stubbornness of man. A great example of this is in Exodus chapter 8. If you remember correctly, in Exodus chapter 8, it's the plague of frogs. They're covered in frogs. Egypt is just completely covered in frogs. Let, let your mind wander for a little bit to what that would be like. Frogs everywhere. Not frogs that you can step over. Frogs that you must step on to get from point A to point B. The crackling of the frog's bones as you step on them. You clear off a seat and more frogs jump on. There are frogs everywhere. Pharaoh comes, repents, says, please get rid of the frogs. Moses said, I'll get rid of the frogs. When do you want the frogs gone? And when you remember Pharaoh's response? Tomorrow. Is that not pride and arrogance? Tomorrow, take the frogs away. No, Lord, deliver me speedily. Now, Lord, please move in my life and my marriage and and just everything. Now, Lord, in your righteousness, do this. Because why? You are, verse 2, my rock. You are, verse 2, my fortress. And to make this point clear, verse 3, you are my rock. You are my fortress. God is not somebody who rambles. So if he wants to, in verse 2, talk about rock and fortress, and he wants to, in verse 3, talk about rock and fortress, he's trying to make a point. Somebody listening online at home, somebody in this room right now needs to be reminded that God is your rock and your fortress. To the point of that he's going to repeat it two verses back to back for you. Because why? In the moment of difficulty, we forget that. That God is our rock and our fortress. And he wants to answer, he wants to help. Look at that verse 2. Bow down your ear to me. That carries a lot of weight. Bow down your ear to me. This is something I can relate to. One, because I have kids. Two, because I'm not very tall. Let me explain. I have this distinct memory. Distinct memory of any time Jim Crager wants to talk to me. That he always put his hands behind his back and lean down. <laughs> I'm not tall. Jim is. And I just always tell them he's bowing down his ear. This is not bowing down in homage or worship. It is tall to short this is god in heaven to man bowing down the ear i have little kids sometimes i need to get down on their level look them in the eye i need to bow down the ear to those girls parent to a child so when you see that phrase bow down your ear to me that's love that's heaven humbling itself to come to earth that's a father speaking to its child The rock, the refuge, what a blessing that is. And why in the world would heaven do this? 
Why? Verse 3. For your name's sake. Your name's sake. Not because James has earned it. Not because James has deserved it. But because of your namesake. Think of the power of that phrase. For your namesake. John Piper does a great job with this. Matthew 6. You know it commonly as the Lord's Prayer. It says pray then like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. John Piper goes on to say, dozens of times, Scripture says that God does things for His namesake. Psalm 23, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Psalm 25, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. Psalm 106, He saved them for His namesake. 1 John 2, your sins are forgiven for His namesake. He goes on to say this, if you ask what is really moving the heart of God in all these statements, and many like them, the answer is that God delights in having His name known and honored. His namesake. So therefore, when you see this in verse 3, for your namesake, not because I've earned it, not because I've deserved it, because how good God is. And what is he going to do, verse 3? He's going to lead me. He's going to guide me. It goes back to what we talked about a couple psalms ago, Psalm 28. Save your people, bless your inheritance, shepherd them also. God save me, God shepherd me. See, here's the deal. We want to be saved, but we don't want to be shepherded. Save me, Lord. But then don't tell me what to do. But yet, what do we see here in three? Lead me and guide me. Can we humble ourselves enough to say, Lord, you are good. You do good. You'll only lead me and guide me towards what's good. So, Lord, save me, but also shepherd me. That's so important to know that the Lord will lead us and guide us. So much so of saying, Lord, lead me and shepherd me and guide me that I can then say, verse five, into your hand, I commit my spirit. That is a powerful phrase into your hand i commit my spirit you have redeemed me O lord god of truth commit my spirit once again christ on the cross at his moment of death that's what he says i've always been fascinated by the last words of people as death is approaching what goes through their mind that's something we we genuinely only experience once so this idea of what's it like at the end jesus at the end had psalm 31 on his mind Into your hands I commit my spirit. I've been allowed a lot of end of life moments. Each one's unique. But I remember one specifically. I can remember for those that have been worshiping out here for a while. You guys remember Howard Spangler. Neat man of God. And I remember going over and visiting Howard as he was getting closer to the end. And he literally was on his deathbed. And I remember him looking at me just saying, so this is what death feels like. Just a quiet assurance in the Lord. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Commit, that's not a word we use a lot. We don't like commitments. We like to do what we want, when we want, how I want. Commitment, though, means I am putting a lot more emphasis. I'm signing my name to this. I've committed myself. And Jesus said this at the end, and Stephen said this at the end in Acts 7. Remember in Acts 7, Stephen was getting stoned to death. That is not a peaceful way to go. But yet, Stephen could still say, into your hand I commit my spirit. How can he say that? Because of next part. You have redeemed me. You have delivered me. You have rescued me. He's redeemed us. He has saved us. So therefore, I have committed my life to him. He delivers me. He rescues me. Please note that sometimes the way God delivers and rescues you is through physical death. Charles Spurgeon has a great quote where he says, Never forget the ultimate form of healing is death. You go from a tent to a mansion. That's a pretty good trade. So, Lord, you will deliver us, you will rescue us in the last part there, because you are the, O Lord, God of truth. Truth. Remember, there's three truths. Jesus is truth, Holy Spirit is truth, Bible is truth, the Bible tells us that. Three truths. And that truth endures. 
We taught through Psalm 100 last week. Psalm 100 verse 5 says his truth endures to all generations. So the truth that is true for me is also true for my kids. It was true for my parents. It's also true for my grandparents. The world is changing. The world's definition of truth is changing, but truth is not changing. Guys, understand in this crazy world we live in how you have to understand that truth is truth and biblical truth is that. We are the minority in most social and moral issues. So therefore, you hear these crazy things. Well, that may be true to you, but it's not true to me. That's not possible. If it's morally, biblically wrong, the truth is it's morally, biblically wrong. You may think it's right, but it doesn't make it right. We have to remember that. I was just talking to a guy recently, and the subject came up. He said he was a Christian. The subject came up with truth. And as we're talking about him being a Christian, next thing you know, he's talking about how he believes all religions are the same. I, I, I said, that can't be truth. There, there's, that's not truth. I can't say your religion is like my religion and we're just calling it different. That's not truth. I remember distinctly one time sharing with somebody and we were at this awkward point in the conversation where we were getting ready to get down to the nuts and bolts of Jesus' truth and Christianity is true and it's not like any other religion. And I remember them saying, it's basically all the same just under different names. And right there I had this moment where the flesh just said, agree with him. And you can be best friends. And then the other part of me says, you can't. And I remember looking them in the eye and, and saying, I can't agree with that. That's not truth. He is the God of truth. Jesus is truth. Bible is truth. Holy Spirit is truth. Truth endures to all generations. And we have to learn as believers to take a stand for that truth. And that means friendships, relationships will be hurt and harmed and awkward and difficult. But yet we have to have an eternal mindset in all that we believe. Because when I know truth, then look at verse 6. I have hated those who regard you as idols. Truth leads me to hating sin. So when I believe in truth of the scriptures... That means I hate moral sin. I hate spiritual sin. I have to look at this world and say, I hate the choices that are being made to the point of sometimes looking at somebody who I call a friend, a relative, and say, listen, I can't agree with what you're doing because truth tells me that is wrong. And I have to say, I hate the choices you're making because it's not truth. It does not line up with the scriptures. It does not line up the nature of Jesus Christ. And it is not led by the Holy Spirit. I tell you, if you ever run into somebody who you believe is doing something that is not biblical. And they claim to be a Christian. A great question to ask them straightforwardly is this. Have you prayed about it and has the Lord led you to do it? Because right then and then you're asking them. Is what you're doing line up with the scriptures? Because if it doesn't, you're wrong. Does it line up with who the nature of Jesus is? Because he said he's truth, then it's wrong. And if it's not led by the Holy Spirit, it's wrong. And if you're doing something that is not biblical in the nature of Jesus or led by the Holy Spirit, then do you really think you're walking in truth? I have to love truth and hate sin. I have to, verse 6, there's our word again, trust in the Lord. And when I love truth and hate sin, guess what happens in verse 7? I'm glad and I rejoice. Because it feels right. It feels right. I mean, there's that moment of taking a stand that it's a pit in your stomach, awful. Then followed by, yeah, Lord, this is right. And I fear God more than I fear man. So therefore, I take the stand for truth and I rejoice. And what do I rejoice in verse 7? I rejoice in his mercy, his steadfast love, his unfailing love, his loving kindness. I don't rejoice in my mercy. I don't rejoice in your mercy. I rejoice in the mercy of God. Because his mercy is what saves me from my sin. 
And so when I am walking in this joy, look at what we get out of verse 7. He considers my troubles. He knows my soul. He cares for the anguish of my soul. He keeps me safe in this world. They can look at this one more time in verse 8. From the hand of the enemy and you set my feet in a wide place. Imagine walking across a canyon. Do you want to walk across a canyon on a one inch bridge? Or do you want to walk across the canyon on a hundred foot bridge? I want the wide place. And this is the blessing that we have. Now, if we could just stop right there, that'd be great. We've already read 9 through 13. The pathetic description of his need. Now, before you think I'm picking on that, I'm not. I just find it fascinating that's how someone described it. Because I can relate to 9 through 13. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I'm in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body. I am struggling spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Look at that. My soul, spiritually, my body, physically. I waste away with grief, emotionally. Verse 10, my life is spent with grief. My years was sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. I am hurting physically. I am hurting spiritually. Verses 11 to 13, socially, I have nobody anymore. I am all alone. Verse 12, I'm like a dead man. People forget about me. I'm a broken, useless vessel. Verse 13, fear is on every side. The fear of what? The fear of health, the fear of money, the fear of losing relationships, the fear of the future. Fear is on every single side of me. I am in the valley right now. I'm in the valley. Now, are you going to faint in the day of adversity like Proverbs says? Are you going to melt in the fire? Are you going to stay in the valley? Some people want to stay in the valley. They love the woe is me. They want to talk about again on how bad they feel. They want to talk about how bad their marriage is, how bad their job is, how bad their life is. They want to stay in the valley. And if you come to help them out of the valley, they say, oh, please, no. Would you just come live in the valley with me? Because misery loves company. We have to stop and realize, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, I am more than a conqueror in Christ. I don't want to live in that valley. That's why it's so important in this this psalm is verse 14. But, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I said you are my God. I'm not staying in that valley. See? One through eight, mountaintop. 9 through 13 valley. 14, I'm heading back up the mountain. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do to somebody in the valley is look at them in love and say, get up. Now that's biblical. 1 Kings 19, Elijah's in depression. He's in discouragement. He wants to die. If you remember correctly, the angels show up. And what does the angel say to Elijah? Arise. Joshua chapter 7. The Israelites just got defeated at Ai. Joshua's just distraught on his knees. God shows up and says to Joshua, two great words, get up. Sometimes the most loving thing I could do to someone in the valley is say, get up. We don't need to talk one more time about everything that's wrong. We don't need to analyze it from every angle. We don't need to rehash it. I just need to tell you in the love of Jesus Christ, you've been long enough in the valley. It's time to get up. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. My times. There are seasons in life. And there are seasons that are extremely difficult. I get that. Winter is hard, but spring comes. And some of you are in a valley season. I get that. I respect that. But I also can't let you live in the valley. I have to also remind you, you trust in the Lord. It's time to get up. 
Because there are depressing seasons. I'm just going to share this with you real quick. I struggle with some seasons like that. But I'm completely backwards. And, and if you think I'm making this up, I'm not making this up. It sounds like I'm joking, am I not? I'm reaching right now in June some of the most depressing time of the year for me. I'm a very logical numbers guy. So I haven't looked at the calendar. I don't know if it's June 20th or June 21st because it changes. Summer equinox is coming up, right? Okay, what is summer equinox? The longest day of the year. So do you know what that means? Starting the next day, what happens? We lose sunlight. That depresses me. That honestly depresses me. That from that point forward, we're losing sunlight. People will come up and they'll come up at the end of June and say, oh, isn't summer great? My first thought is, yeah, we're losing daylight every day. <laughs> Granted that today was only 30 seconds, but we're losing it every day. We're actually getting colder every day. Oh, no, we're not. The warmest time of the year is July and August. I know because what happens is the sun has warmed up the earth up until June 20th, 21st. And then the sun's starting to pull away. We're losing sunlight, but there's so much residual heat that the earth just feels warm. You don't understand it. I'm the guy that December 20th, 21st, the longest day of the year, I love it. Because you know why? The next day, we're getting more light. People are like, oh, it's so depressing. Depressing? You gained 30 seconds more sunlight from yesterday. You think I'm joking. I'm not. You come in the middle of January, in that third week of January, which is normally the coldest time of the year. It's like, oh, it's so cold. You don't understand it. Every day we're getting 30 seconds more sunlight, which means the earth is getting a little bit warmer. And so therefore we are slowly warming up. That is how my mind works. Pray for me. Because what happens is it really does get to me that I go out after June 21st and I look around. It's like, it is. It's getting a little darker. Now, it doesn't really show anything for about a good month. But it's just literally seconds a day. My times are in your hand. So when you guys are enjoying July, I'm depressed. When you guys are woe is me, January 1st, I'm like, dude, it's getting brighter every day. You haven't noticed it, haven't you? It's a perspective thing. A valley for me is not a valley for you. Your valley is not my valley. But I tell you this, we need to encourage each other in the valleys. Times and seasons are in God's hands. And I need to trust that. And I need to trust that verse 16, his face shines. If you've been with us in our study in the book of Numbers, we just talked about that a little bit ago. Face shining on you represents relationship. That's why in Deuteronomy 6, that's that great prayer of, Lord, make your face shine upon us. It shows a relationship. I think of where Moses went up the mountain, was in the glory of God, and he came down and his face shone that he had to wear a veil. So we want that relationship, the face shining. Save me for your mercy's sake. Lord, don't save me because of my righteousness. Don't save me because of my mercy. Lord, because of your mercy. I can't earn this. I can't do this. Lord, you save me. For your name's sake, your righteousness' sake, your mercy's sake, Lord. For your great glorious name, save me. Because I have not earned this or deserved this in any way whatsoever. Which then takes us to 19. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Fear and trust him then. Trust we've already established multiple times in this chapter. You see the word trust repeated in verse 1, verse 6, verse 14, verse 19. There's two different words for trust in this chapter. The word in 19 is trust that you run to. Lord, I run to you. And Lord, I fear you. 
I fear you in my finances. I fear you in my thoughts. I fear you in my words. I fear you in what I say. I fear you in what, what I do. Because, Lord, I know you're such a great God. I fear you. So, therefore, I trust you. And that goes right hand in hand. We've gone full circle. Verse 1. And you, O Lord, I put my trust. Verse 19. In which you have prepared for those who trust in you. Trusting him. Now, what happens, though, when we're walking in this fear? We're walking in this trust. We see verse 21, his marvelous kindness. But then look at 22. I said in my haste, I'm cut off from before your eyes. Careful of haste. Careful of what you say in the valley. Some translations say 22, in my panic and my alarm. In the valley we say what I like to call grandiose statements. I can't do this anymore. I can't. I can't do this job anymore. I can't do this ministry anymore. I can't do this marriage anymore. Prayer doesn't work. I'm done. I'm done with church. I'm done with worship. I'm done with everything. I just, I'm done. I said in my haste, in my panic, in my alarm. I remember years ago at a pastor's conference, a pastor made a quick point. It was one of those that really resonated with me. He said, never quit a ministry out of frustration. Never quit a job out of frustration. Never quit a marriage out of frustration. Never quit anything out of frustration. Never. Never in panic, haste, or alarm say, I can't, I'm done, I quit, I'm over, it doesn't work. That's a valley speaking. That's not the Lord speaking. Be careful in haste of what you say. Because go back to 14, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord, I say you are my God. In the middle of the valley, it's hard to remember that. But Lord, I have to trust you. I will not faint in the day of adversity. I will not melt in the fire. I will trust you. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about trust. I trust him wholly. I trust him only. I trust him simply. I trust him now. And I trust him forever. Black covers it all. I trust him wholly, I trust him only, I trust him simply, I trust him now, and I trust him forever. That's trust. No matter what goes on, we trust, which takes us to this great declaration of faith at the end. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart, all you hope in the Lord. Remember the word hope is not wish. We use the word hope and wish almost as synonyms today. Oh, I hope it works out for you. Oh, I hope you had a good day. Oh, I hope you got good results. No, no, no. Hope is secure trust, strong confidence. God is a God of hope, not a God of wishing. So Lord... I have hope that you will move in that life. I have hope that you will move in that marriage. I have hope that you will move in that ministry for your glory. I'm not wishing. I have strong trust, strong confidence that you are going to move. And I trust that securely. Once again, I trust him wholly, trust him only, trust him simply, trust him now, and trust him forever. If you are in the valley today, 24, be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. There are valleys, but yet the Lord, verse 14, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. And we walk in that faith and that trust. Would you please stand with me? nine o'clock service we finished you know with the whole social distancing can't do altar calls i mean you can but you can't like go lay hands on people we try to really be blameless in this we're really trying but at the nine o'clock it was a a much smaller group 
We just had people say, are you struggling? Are you in the valley right now? Just raise your hand. And we just said, okay, I see it back there. We said their name. We said, we're going to pray right now as the body of Christ for you. And we did. We had some people raise their hand. And we just, just said, I'm going to pray by name. And we prayed for them. Now, in, in a group like this, it doesn't work. But I want to tell you guys this. As we close out in prayer, if you're in the valley, right now is the time. Right now is the time to say, I'm in the valley, and Lord, I'm just being honest with you. I'm saying in my haste a whole lot of things that aren't biblical. I'm saying in my haste a whole lot of things that are not the nature of Jesus. It is not the truth of the Holy Spirit. And you need to be reminded, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. Let's pray. Lord, for anybody in the valley right at this moment, I pray, Lord, that you are the God of strength. You are their rock. You are their fortress. You are their solid truth, that they would trust in you. You are their God. Their times are in your hand, Lord, that they would be of good courage, you would strengthen their heart, and they would hope in you, not wish in you, but hope in you, Lord. And if there's a lot of grandiose statements in haste, I pray in the name of Jesus, those are silenced. And Lord, if there's here, if there's someone here right now that is so much in the valley, they're in the valley of sin, they don't even know you, I pray right now you are speaking to their heart of what it means to walk in your mercy, Lord. Not in their good works, but they're walking in you, Lord, the God that they are in rebellion against, the God that they are fighting, that you're right now, your heart, you are speaking to their heart, Lord, and you are showing them truth, you are showing them salvation, you are showing them who Jesus is, and there is a spirit of conviction upon them, bringing to the point of them realizing it is God's mercy, it is God's gift of salvation, and that it is their sin that is separating them. And Lord, that you are revealing that to them at this moment. They would then come out of the valley of death and walk in the assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you are moving in those lives. And right now we hope in you. You are a good God and you do good in your name. Amen. Amen. You guys.